0: This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where your host, that's me, Erica Anderson, brings you unique and interesting conversations with Christian women working in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. See you there.
1: This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts. Let us
2: give up our work our thoughts ourselves our lives our influence our all right into his hand every episode we bring you a different voice from history in a
3: sermon that they delivered today's episode was preached originally by hudson taylor in
1: 1890 in Shanghai at the opening of a missions conference joel i am trying to imagine hudson taylor getting up on that stage in 1890 was he as famous in their minds as he is in ours today? What was the conference like? Was it, you know, there would have probably been no air conditioning. It would have probably been hot and muggy in Shanghai. Um, you know, just a few months before he preaches here, this phrase, to every creature, comes out. Someone was interviewing him, talking to him, and he says that to every creature, we're going to preach the gospel. Taylor's evangelistic zeal is what he's known for today, and it was, it was even becoming world famous already at this point. And... He sails back to China, he gives these opening remarks to this missions conference and to these people who are missionaries in China who are here to be encouraged. And I I love that. You'll see in the sermon, he doesn't just say, you guys are great for being here. You guys are doing good work. It's, this is the team. He really goes at them and reminds them, what is the mission? What is the purpose of being here?
3: Yeah, Hudson Taylor is probably one of my favorites uh, that we do here on this show. I like Hudson Taylor a lot. And we have done an episode on him already so if you want to know more about his backstory and his history i strongly encourage you go and listen to that just as a, as a quick summary as a recap uh he was born in 1832 and he was called to be a missionary in china at the around age 17 he felt that calling that is by far what he's most known for he started one of the most famous missionary organizations in the world called china inland missions in 1865 and he grew the organization to 825 members And him and his organization had an estimated 25,000 converts in his life uh, that he was able to see before his death in 1905. He lost multiple children and wives while living in China, but their legacy still lives on in China today as missionaries. They're on the fifth generation of Hudson Taylor descendants now that still do missions work in China. So again, I'm just scratching the surface as as a recap, but we're looking at the late 1800s, a big missions movement in China during that time. And uh, our initial episode on Taylor goes into his calling and the kind of some near-death experiences that got him there that is pretty interesting to listen to. But today we're going to spin the history section talking a lot about his his physical journey on the boat getting to China and a lot of his
1: motivation leading up to this conference that he's preaching this sermon at. He originally went to China for 10 years, 1815 to 1860. And when he returned to England, it was due to bad health. He wasn't feeling well. Uh, they thought, okay, you need to go back to England and rest for a while. I can't imagine, by the way, a few months long journey on a boat was great for one's health. So I, I, it must've been pretty bad if they thought, you need to go all the way back to England to get feeling better. In 1865, he writes this book and it is titled China's Spiritual Needs and Claims. And this book is, is very important, actually, and in, in maybe in future episodes of Hudson Taylor, we can talk about people who were just affected by that book. Uh, Oswald Chambers, who we did an episode on, was really affected by that book. Um, but just like today, China was one of the most populous countries in the world, and he was broken by this idea that there were so many people who were living in this one country, and there were so many of them were living in just poverty conditions, and they didn't have the light of the gospel at all. There wasn't even a missionary within a thousand miles of them, and there were many provinces where no missionaries were working at all, and that meant that they had no hope of hearing about Jesus Christ. So he founded this small organization with the hope of getting missionaries into every single province, at least. In 1866, China Inland Mission had 22 missionaries, and they were ready to go. And 18 of them took off, and they left. I love Hudson
3: Taylor's uh, attitude and approach towards missions uh, in China in particular. I mean, that's, that's his heart. And you'll hear in the sermon, like, that... That passion, that that translates. Like you can still, when we listen to the sermon here in a little bit, it, it you can't help but kind of getting caught up by his enthusiasm. There's a line in the sermon where he talks about, and I'm not quoting it directly, but he talks about how being alive in that day in that era where steam power and the telegram are all coming together to enable the spread of the gospel like it's never had happened before and so the fact that he's able to get on ships and and go to china and for that travel to become more practical and more easily accessed was something that taylor was crazy about he loved the idea that you could more easily get to china but that doesn't mean that it was completely smooth sailing and in fact There was the the second time that he's bringing his initial missionary organization to China. They get caught in a huge storm. It's actually two different typhoons that hit his boat as they're trying to come into China in that area. And they get caught in the storm for 12 days straight. I mean, one of the issues when it comes to being stranded at sea... A lot of the times is a lack of fresh water supply like that that could be a threat to the survival of the people during a typhoon that's not really a concern it's almost the opposite where there's too much water you can't cook food because you can't keep a fire going uh, and you're constantly trying to pump out the water so the boat doesn't fill and capsize and so imagine, I mean, there, there's people talk about on that ship during that storm, you couldn't even hear the captain barking orders because the wind and the rain was pounding so hard to try to imagine that going on, not not for an hour, not for, you know, six hours, not for an evening or a night, but for 12 days straight, just being beaten by the rain and the wind uh, and not being able to hear someone shouting, you know, across the boat from you. Uh, that That's pretty scary. And when they arrived in Shanghai, the boat was so battered and torn that people said it looked like a ghost ship coming into port they you know they didn't think anyone was alive on there it was just floating into the port there but everyone on board survived which is a miracle there was another boat that was on the same route behind them coming in that got caught in the same storm and out of the 22 sailors on that boat only 6 of them survived so most of their crew died in that storm but on Hudson Taylor's boat the entire missions organization that was traveling with them was preserved uh, and not a single one was lost
1: so it gets even weirder the whole city of shanghai like kind of comes out looks at the boat they're like, what's going on there's this ghost ship you know i'm sure they were getting hit with rain and wind and they knew there was a bad storm they see this just a beat up looking boat come in it looks terrible and people are kind of coming out to look at it it's such a unique looking thing and they find out the boat is just filled with missionaries And these missionaries were doing everything different than what the rest of the Westerners and and missionaries and people who came into China were doing. Uh, For starters, when they get there, they immediately start dressing in the Chinese way of dressing. Um, They start putting their hair up in the same way that Chinese people do. And that's just not what, uh, at the time europeans and americans when they go to other countries were doing so that alone was kind of making a scene and they also took with them a bunch of single women to be missionaries this was another thing at the time you did not do you know we kind of find that funny now if you're in the church a whole lot you it's not very uncommon to think of single women actually being missionaries back then that was not a thing and so as they were heading out of uh, shanghai and heading you know walking the path to the next city where they were headed they w- the people were making fun of them they're like at the pigtail mission go huh? And they barely made it here on that boat and we'll see how they do kind of a thing it was almost a joke around people uh, and they head to hangzhou hangzhou is a beautiful city, and I'm not just saying this because I live there, but a little bit maybe I am. Uh, it's centered around a river and a very large lake called Westlake. Uh, the back of all of China's money today is printed with this lake on it, and it's filled with ancient temples. In fact, one of the oldest temples in the world is there. It's misty, it's warm, it's got tons of thunderstorms, and it's a small aspect of the story, but these people were coming from Britain, a cold, cloudy uh, place, and they were moving their entire lives without out to a place where there's no english really they're moving and they're taking on this new dress they're taking on this new customs they're taking on new weather they're taking on new food everything about their lives is transforming and, and unlike today there's no email there's no messenger there's no videos uh there's no and back home once they're there you know it's they're there and there's not really much of a turning back unless you want to take a several month voyage that you almost died getting there uh back out so it's a it's a huge commitment that i sometimes think gets lost in this whole story we hear people moving here and there and just okay it's pretty normal no it's still very hard they have kids and stuff too it was hard on hudson taylor um
3: he didn't like having to leave to raise support for missionaries he liked to be there uh working but he found himself leaving and raising support and recruiting a bit more uh it's at least 11 times he left and came back to China at least, probably more than that. It's kind of like a busy CEO who is so busy on the logistics of the company that he doesn't get to do the job that he originally fell in love with anymore. That's kind of like Hudson Taylor where he wants to spend more time just ministering to the people. And a lot of people associate Hudson Taylor with just China but he, he was busy all over the place. He was encouraging missionaries in Japan, he was encouraging missionaries in Canada and even inside of America as well. So he's a busy guy, but his heart is, is always wanting to get back to minister to the people in China and just live by faith there.
1: in 1890 by the time he got to this missionary conference his name must have been pretty famous i think among the people uh, how many of the missionaries that were actually there were there because of the china inland mission or had been touched by this man in his 30 years of work adopting the customs and and reaching out and constantly raising support in this sermon he talks about jesus's compassion on the multitude and how jesus took food and fed the four thousand how God uses those who are willing, if they just make themselves willing and go wherever God calls them. And as one who so often saw God do this for others, and he was a missionary, he was seeing it firsthand, he was experiencing it firsthand, he really knows what he's talking about um, when he says that God can provide and give you what he needs you to do and what he has told you to do. You know, back on that boat when the China Inland mission was up against the waves, they they wrote a hymn to remember this experience. People who just had no idea whether they were going to be successful, change the world, or do anything. They honestly could have drowned in the waves for all they knew. Uh, But they wrote this hymn, and I I don't know the music. I'm not going to sing it, but I I do want to read it because it really impacted me. People who had, they changed the world. All of these people become famous and very important. But at this moment, they're on their way there. There's Almost the entire China Inland Mission, if it went down in this boat, that would be the end and they don't know whether they will make a difference whether anybody will hear the cause of christ but they write this hymn anyway and looking back i think it's so profound it says this over the dark blue sea over the trackless flood a little band is gone in the service of their god the lonely waste of waters they traverse to proclaim in the distant land of china emmanuel's saving name they have heard from the far off east the voice of their brother's blood A million a month in China are dying without God.
2: And Jesus departed from there and came near to the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came to him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet. And he healed them, insomuch that the multitude wondered, when they saw the dumb speak, the maimed made whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have continued with me now for three days, and have nothing to eat, and I will not send them away fasting, or they will faint on the way." And his disciples said to him, Where would we get so much bread in the wilderness as to feed so great a multitude? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few little fishes. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fishes and gave thanks and broke them, and gave to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And then they did all eat and were filled. And they took up the broken meat that was left, seven baskets full, and those who ate were 4,000 men, not including women and children. Matthew fifteen twenty-nine through 38. This narrative will, I, I think, touch all of our hearts in one respect. From the very beginning and to the end, we see the presence of the Lord's blessing. The 32nd verse, which speaks of the feeding of the multitude, brings before us Jesus. Jesus called to his disciples. Jesus opened their hearts to the sympathy and compassion of his heart. I have compassion on the multitude. I will not send them away fasting, so they won't faint on the way. Well, this is just what we all need. We want our dear master to draw us near to himself, to open his own heart to us, and let us see the depths of his compassion and the strength of his determination to feed the multitude. And oh, won't we be as his disciples were, utterly at his disposal. Will we not feel as they felt? Our Lord had compassion on the multitude and wishes them to be fed. Then they must be fed and one question only may arise, how will it be done? Our blessed Lord had fed a multitude previously, a larger multitude, probably 5,000 men, not including women and children. The disciples knew no doubt the condition of this multitude. They knew how long that they had been with our Lord. They knew their great need but they had not learned the lesson which they should surely have learned from the previous miracle. It never appears to have entered into their minds to undertake the work of feeding this multitude before they were sent away. And when our blessed Lord reveals to them his own thought and feeling about the matter, the questions raised, as though they had never seen the previous miracle, where should we find so much bread in the wilderness as to feed such a great multitude? It seems very amazing that they should not have remembered the feeding of the 5,000 and should not have seen the whole thing at once. But how similar to the disciples are we? How frequently God has helped us in some time of special trial or special difficulty and, and we've rejoiced in his help. Yet, perhaps the very next time the Lord has brought us into the same circumstances, our faith has been so wavering and weak and our expectations so low We've had but a very poor sort of hope, perhaps, when we should have had strong confidence in him. But is it not very blessed to see that our gracious Lord did not scold these disciples? He didn't. He didn't say, really, you are of no use to me. There is no reason for me to use you. You don't learn the lessons you should learn. I'll work this miracle independent of you. No, he deals so gently so graciously, so loving with them. He leads them along and uses them again and yet again in his blessed service. You know, this same Jesus is with us now and with the task before us of carrying the gospel to the lost multitudes of this land. We have the same forbearing, loving, mighty Lord, not in his weakness as Jesus was when on earth, but now ascended to the Father's throne, having received all power in heaven and all power on earth. Second, this narrative is very helpful to us because it shows us that his disciples are the instruments of his work. Weak and poor as they were, our blessed Lord fully realized his oneness with his disciples and their oneness with him. And I think there's a lesson for us to learn that we should not work independently of one another. If our blessed Lord worked through his disciples and would not work independently, how closely should we be knit together And how should we realize our oneness and with practical cooperative oneness do the work that he's given us to do? Our gracious master has told us that he is the vine and we are the branches. And if we forget our corporate unity, he does not forget. He remembers his oneness with us and never ignores his people. He does not work independently of them, but through them. He called his disciples to him and opened his heart to them. He told them his desire and purpose, and he looked to them to carry out that desire. Those disciples were very weak in the faith. They had not yet received the outpouring of the Spirit and the abundance with which they were blessed at Pentecost, but they had one thing in their favor. They were near to Jesus, and they heard what he had to say, and however conscious they may have been of the difficulty of the situation, they were prepared to do what they were told. Oh, dear friends, are we living habitually in such nearness to the Lord Jesus that the gentlest intimation of his wish comes to us with the force of a command? And with the consciousness that some way or another it's possible to obey and that we will be carried through in any service to which he calls us? Well, third, we brought before us the multitude. I'm so glad it was a great multitude and that the disciples evidently thought that it was impossible to feed them all of their previous experience of the lord's goodness had not built in them this faith that it was possible to supply the requirements of all these people and to even do it all at once where should we have so much bread in the wilderness they say so as to feed so great a multitude so much are we too apt to be mathematical and logical in our thoughts we want so much to do so much They forgot with whom they had to do. In the presence of the Lord, it was no matter how much there was. The widow at Sarapta may have said, How much flour will I need if I am to support Elijah for many days? Well, it wasn't any question of how much she had. It was better for her to have only a handful of meal and a little oil in the pot than to have a dozen barrels of meal. I've often thought of that since the great famine in Shaanxi when we saw how dangerous it was to have too much money or too much food. I have often thought it was much better to have small resources in the hand of God who is able to multiply them. Better than it is to have too much. If that poor widow had had a large store in her house, do you think she could have kept the house over her head? It would have been torn in pieces by the hungry multitude, impelled by the famine to take possession of anything that would appease their hunger. But who could rob the poor widow of a handful of meal and a little drop of oil in the pot? Yet it was amply sufficient for the Lord's blessing rested upon it. God in his word gives us illustration after illustration of the great truth that what he has given us is all that we need in order to glorify his own great name. We require nothing more. When Moses on the mount was wondering how the message could be trusted, the Lord said, what have you got in your hand? Why, he had nothing but a staff. That was quite sufficient. Throw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. Afterwards, when he had nothing in his hand, the Lord said, put your hand in your bosom. And that healthy hand was at once made leprous. The Lord does not require anything outside of that which he's given to his people to accomplish his present purposes, whatever they may be. So it's not a question of large supplies. It's just a question of the presence of the Lord and of that willing obedience that put all that they had at his disposal. Fourth, let's look at the Lord's methods. How are the people fed? Well, for starters, by the united action of Christ and his disciples. He claimed their all. They gladly gave up their all and unhesitatingly obeyed all his directions. Our Lord said to them, how many loaves do you have? (laughs) Now, if there had been some accountants there, they might have set to work to calculate. Well, the Lord's done a great miracle like this before. Then uh, there were 5,000 men and a great number of women and children. He had five loaves. And after the multitude was fed, there were enough and plenty to spare. Here we have 4,000, Four four loaves will suffice. We'll keep three for ourselves and give him as large a proportionate share as he had before. Do we not hear a good deal of that sort of thing? And is it not very mistaken and foolish? The Lord asked them to give what they had. They told him they had seven loaves and a few small fishes. And he asked them to bring and he took possession of all seven loaves and all the fishes It's not a question whether four loaves might not suffice or one loaf might not suffice. It was just the act of an entire consecration. Now for our conference, we need to be in this position of entire consecration, utterly, absolutely at the disposal of our Lord. We do not need a larger number than he has brought together. We do not need greater ability. We do not need wider experience in order to have full blessing but we do need to be near to our lord very near to him to have him reigning in our hearts we need to know that we are in consecration to him and show ourselves in consecration to him in all that we have and all that we are in unreserved consecration given up to him and if this is so as the multitudes was fed so our own needs and desires will be met and the needs of this great people will be met to an extent perhaps far beyond our highest thought and our most lofty expectations. Oh, let's be every day seeking to be all for Jesus and being all for Jesus we will be all for one another and all drawn together. Let us just give up our work, our thoughts, our plans, ourselves, our lives, our loved ones, our influence, our all right into his hand. And then when we've given all over to him, there will be nothing left for us to be troubled about or to make trouble about. When all is in his hand, all will be safe. All will be wisely dealt with. All will be done and well done. When the eye sees only one thing, when the heart is true to Christ, then and then alone the whole body will be full of light. And the whole body is full of light, having no dark part. Then the whole of the question that come before us, the whole of our circumstances and relationships and surroundings will be full of light too. As when the bright shining of a lamp glows through us. When the bright shining of the lamp brightens our path, it sheds light all around, and we step forward with confidence. We see where we're going, we know what we're doing, because we're full of light. This fullness of light is just what we want for this conference. This is just the preparation we require. How do we get it? Simply by unreserved surrender, taking our Lord as king and putting ourselves and all we have and all we are into his hands. If he takes some plan very different from what is in my mind, what does it matter? We're here to see China blessed, not our own plans carried out. What does it matter which brother or sister the Lord honors in his service? What if only Christ is glorified but China is saved? When our hearts are true to him, everything becomes simple and there's no danger of difficulty from personal matters coming in and blinding our eyes. Oh, let us by his grace be brought so low before him and yet be so lifted up by him above circumstances and surroundings that the heart is just singing with joy all the time, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Listening for the master's voice, wanting to know his will, asking what would Jesus do in this matter? What would be his pleasure in this enterprise? What would be his joy in this undertaking? And then all our hearts will gladly go after him. As our brother stated, we do love him and we do serve him and we mean to love him more and serve him better every day of our lives. You know, I'm sure that our Lord has brought us together for grand blessing. I expect a great outcome from this conference and I expect it and you expect it too. We've asked it of the Lord in faith and we know that the one who has compassion upon the earth on the multitude who followed him for three days is not going to leave us hungering and thirsting in the dark who at his own command and for his own sake have left things most dear to us and have come to spend our lives in this land and who give all our dearest ones into his charge whether taken as in the case of the dear babe just taken home to sleep in jesus or spared to love and serve him when our own service is past, if our master will tarry and delay his coming. But let us further consider the methods of the Lord Jesus in the feeding of this multitude. You know, it's delightful to realize that we have in Christ the wisdom of God as well as the power of God. And you can see here the way in which he accomplished every purpose was the wisest way. His methods were perfect methods. Being the servant of our Father, he was guided in all things by his Holy Spirit. He fully followed the one who sent him. Well, second, in the next place, our Lord did not act unsystematically. He used both method and order. His first requirement was not that the multitude should sit down on the ground. It was highly probable that some similar plan was adopted during the feeding of the 5,000, that they were divided into groups easy to reach, so there might be no confusion and no difficulty about the distribution, and so that none might be overlooked or neglected, but all might be methodically served with the bread and with the fish. Now, here's a practical lesson of wisdom. I'm so thankful that one subject to be discussed at this conference is the division of the field. Our present forces, if wisely divided, would be able to accomplish so much more than we're now accomplishing. I, I think we all feel this more or less, and... And so I pray that the Spirit of God may throw light on this difficult question, which is so impossible for us to manage, but very easy for him. If one or two of the disciples had taken these loaves, and one had kept five in his hand and another two, it might have been very difficult to get them properly distributed. But they were all first handed over to Jesus, and then having offered thanks to God, he broke and gave them to the disciples and sent them to distribute to the multitude." We're not told that he said to Peter, you know, you go to this group, and then to James, you go to that. He assumed that the sound judgment and the spirit of obedience with common sense were quite sufficient to guide them in these matters. And they acted no doubt in a rational way. Four or five of them would not go to one company getting in the way of one another, and none to the next group, but undoubtedly they distributed themselves wisely over the work that was to be done it was all done in a systematic way. It would take a good deal of time for 12 men to break off pieces of bread and to give them to, with pieces of fish to 4,000 and who knows how many women and children, but they did not raise any question as to the time it would take or the difficulty of accomplishing it. The Lord gave them the bread to distribute and he began and went on until all had their portion so that all were filled and all were satisfied. I have little doubt that very soon those who were receivers in the first instance became distributors. Perhaps some men broke a piece off their bread and gave it to his wife, and he found that he had no less after he had divided the bread than before. And when he found this out, he was ready to distribute even more. It seems to me highly probable that the distribution was not all done directly from the hand of the apostles to each one of the thousands who were present, but that the first receivers became, in their turn, distributors. Are we not looking for something like this to a much larger extent than we have seen it? Thank God, many of those who have been turned from the service of idols to the living God are now distributing the word of life which they have received and are spreading the message which has been a blessing to themselves, but we want it to be true to a very much larger extent. How is this to be brought about? It seems to me that we want to ask more seriously than I have done in bygone days. What is really the will and command of our blessed Lord? And we need to set about obeying him, not merely attempting to obey. I don't know that we're told anywhere in the Bible to try to do anything. We must try to do the best we can is a very common expression. I remember the years ago after a remark of that kind, looking very carefully through the New Testament to see under what circumstances the disciples were told to try to do anything. I did not expect to find many instances, but I was surprised I didn't find any at all. Then I went through the Old Testament very carefully and I couldn't find that the Lord had told any of the Old Testament believers to try to do anything. There are many commands apparently impossible to obey, but they were all definite commands. And I think we all have to remind ourselves not to try to obey our Lord as far as we can, but to obey him. We're not to try, we are to obey If as an organized conference we are to obey the command of the Lord to the full, we should have such an outpouring of the Spirit, such a Pentecost, unlike any the world has ever seen since the Spirit was poured in Jerusalem. God gives the Spirit not to those who long for him, not to those who pray for him, not to those who desire to be filled always, but he gives his Holy Spirit to them that obey him if as an act of obedience we were determined that every district every town every village every hamlet in this land should hear the gospel and that quickly and if we were to set about doing it I believe that the spirit would come down with such mighty power that we would find loaves and fishes springing up on every hand places we don't know where or how but we would see them we should find the fire spreading from missionary to flock and the Native Christians all on fire, setting their neighbors on fire, and our native fellow workers and the the entire Church of God would be blessed and moving. God gives the Holy Spirit to them that obey Him. Let's look to it, that we see really what the Lord's commands are to us now in this day of our opportunity, in this day of the remarkable openness of the country. In this day, when there are so many tools, when God's put steam and telegraph at the command of his people for the quick carrying of his purposes, as to wealth, there's no end to his resources. Poverty in his hands is the greatest possible wealth. A handful of meal blessed by the Lord is quite sufficient to accomplish any purpose the Lord chooses to accomplish by it. It's not the question of resources at all to those who are following the master, doing just what he has for them to do. To return back to our point, the miracle was done systematically. The disciples were not told to act in any erratic or fanatical way, but the common sense God had given them was to be used. Our Savior himself organized their arrangements and gave them work to do in a way in which it was possible speedily and satisfactorily to accomplish it. He took their all, and it was quite sufficient. And not only were the multitudes fed, but the disciples themselves were encouraged. When all had been satisfied, they gathered up seven baskets full of the fragments that remained. We cannot set ourselves to do the Lord's work at his command and in his way without reaping a rich blessing for ourselves. I'm speaking to missionary brethren who are accustomed to preach the word of truth and to sisters who are accustomed to read that word and to speak to the women in their homes and elsewhere. And do we not all know and feel that it is we who get the richest blessing? If those to whom we minister the word of life get a 10th part of the sweetness and preciousness that we ourselves get in the ministering it, they will be well fed. And we will be well satisfied. It is in giving that we receive. It's in holding back that we lose. The disciples themselves were enriched. And if we claim from the church at home seven loaves of the Lord Jesus Christ, not three or four or five, and if we give to the Lord Jesus all our seven loaves, oh, how we will be enriched while he multiplies and magnifies and blesses far beyond our highest thought. Well, in conclusion, the great commission which our master has given to us is expressed in several different ways. Our brother read to us the commission as given in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. The different wordings in which our Savior gave his commission on the various occasions are all to be considered in the Plans of service that he leads us to adopt are to be diverse in their methods and kinds and very inclusive to many. I don't know of any kind of missionary work in China, and I've never heard of any, on which the Lord's blessing has not rested and cannot rest and in which we may not hope to see great increase. But beyond all this, Within the last few months, there has come home to my own heart with a power I've never realized before, the commission as expressed in the Gospel of Mark, to preach the gospel to every creature, to the whole creation. Well, I don't think our present methods of work want to be materially modified, and certainly none of them should be weakened or abandoned. They should be strengthened. But it does seem to me that we want to take this additional command of rapid evangelization to our hearts, for I think it an additional, and say, what did the Lord mean? Nay, what does the Lord mean today by saying in his holy word, preach the gospel to every creature? I can find my thoughts to this one empire at the present time, but I'm quite sure that we cannot obey the command of God with regard to China and any other country be left unblessed. For the field is the whole world, and the heart of God is so large that no part of the world is outside of his thought or outside his purpose. As the body of Christ is one, we cannot have any member or any limb of that body, if it may use that expression, in healthy, active exercise without improving the health and increasing the vigor of the whole body. And if we can, in an increased measure of intelligent obedience, carry the evangelization of China forward rapidly. The church cannot reach the villages and hamlets of China and leave those of India or the masses of Africa where they are. However, confining our attention to today to China, the, the thought has been very much on my heart. Can nothing be done to present the gospel speedily to this nation? I do not think that there are so many people in China as many do. I, I've carefully read the diaries of many missionaries in every province of China for many years past. And I think the number that's frequently given is as the population of China is exaggerated. But let the estimate be what it may. If it were twice as many as people think, the command remains the same. Our privilege and duty is to obey the command and to see that the gospel reaches every family. If there were 250 million in China, and I think no one will estimate a lower figure than that, there will not be more than 50 million families. And if I had a 1,000 evangelists and coal porters reaching 50 families a day in a 1,000 days or less than three years, an offer of the written gospel or the verbal message might be given to all, that is within three years after the number of workers were in the field and fit to undertake the work. If the population were double, it would only take twice as long. If the same agency were at work, It's not at all a difficult thing to reach 150 adults or 50 families in the course of a day. I would commend to you your prayerful consideration, the question whether there ought to not go out forth from this conference a united appeal to the Christian church to undertake the work of rapidly preaching the gospel over this land. I don't say that going to a village and preaching the gospel there for three or four days is all that's needed, but it's something that's needed. It's a beginning. Suppose the Apostle Paul had said, my work's quite useless. I can't stay very long in any place I go to. I'm driven away before I have time to form a church. I'll give it up. (laughs) The glorious work that God did by him would not have been done. He went as the Lord led him, and the Lord prevented him from making the error of staying too long in one place by driving him away. He scattered steeds of truth and after he went away, men talked about these things and thought about them and the thoughts slowly permeated through the minds of many. Beside those who were led at once to receive the truth and who perhaps as Jewish proselytes or Jews are acquainted with the Old Testament, the Gentiles had new thoughts brought into their minds. Many important truths were talked over and thought over and the truth was working when the worker was gone. And he who sent him to preach the gospel in this town or that city and then allowed them to be driven away sent other workers to follow it up. Paul was not the only worker for God or the only arrow in his quiver. When Paul had planted and passed on, the Lord found an Apollos to water and he gave him the increase I do trust that we will not separate without a strong appeal to the churches. I believe the appeal that went forth to the churches from the conference 13 years ago did incalculable good and has been greatly blessed. But the churches now are in a very different state than they were 13 years ago. There was never such a preparation of evangelists as there is now in the church. There was never such a thing as some 4,000 college students in America pledged if the Lord opens their way to give their lives to missionary work. There was never that preparation in the hearts of Christian young men and women in Europe to give themselves to mission work. I believe if you were now to send forth a strong appeal, it would not take very long to get a thousand evangelists from Europe and America into the field. And if these evangelists were associated with the established missions so that there was wise direction and supervision, I am sure that they would be a strength in every part of the field and a blessing in every part of China. We have about 40 societies represented here. It would only want 25 men to be associated with each society to give us a 1,000 additional workers for the special work of scattering the gospel, broadcast by word of mouth and printed page. America could surely give us 500 very easily, and I'm sure Europe would do the same. I have been in correspondence with a number of earnest workers and among them a number of retired missionaries, both in America and on the continent of Europe. And I'm told that there are many hearts praying for something of this kind. And if there was a wise division of the field and a wise arrangement given to us by God in our conference, we may very speedily indeed see what we desire, a large number of new workers coming to this land missionary formerly connected with the Basil Missionary Society wrote me from Germany after reading a paper written by me asking for prayer that a thousand evangelists might be speedily sent to China. And he said, we must have 100 of them from Germany. Well, I'm quite sure from my visit to Scandinavia that 100 would be within the number of earnest men who might be expected from there within a very short time. Would it be a very hard thing to expect 300 workers from Great Britain and Ireland leaving out the rest of the continent? Cannot the Church of England, which has 35,000 ordained clergy, find 100 lay workers who could come out to labor here? Would not the Presbyterian friends of England, Scotland, and Ireland verily easily find another 100? I asked this question not two months ago at a workers' meeting in Glasgow, and the reply was, well, we could send 100 from Glasgow alone. Well, I believe they could, and that without very much difficulty. And what about the great Methodist bodies? Would 100 workers be a very unreasonable contingent for them to give to us with their thousands of lay preachers besides all their ministers? As for 500 from America, it seems so ridiculously small compared to the greatness of that country, its missionary zeal and capacity, that it seems almost absurd to propose so small a contingent. I do most earnestly commend this thought to you for your prayerful consideration. Wiser men may have wiser suggestions to make, but in whatever way we do the thing, let us do it. The Lord Jesus Christ has been for 60 generations looking down on this land. And from the very earliest post-apostolic times, there's never been in the church that zeal and enterprise which had attempted the full evangelization of its own generation. I think we'll all agree with Dr. Pearson that the command of Christ really implies that each generation will evangelize its own generation, just as the multitude that we have had our attention turned to in the narrative had an immediate supply of an immediate need. It would have been of no use to say to them, well, after two or three days, you're going to be fed. (laughs) They were hungry, and they would faint by the way. So today the multitudes are perishing. And while we're waiting, they're dying without the gospel. But oh, will not our blessed Lord have the joy of finding in this 60th generation after his agony for us in Gethsemane, in this 60th generation after he so lovingly trusted his church to be faithful to him and to carry out his commission, will he not have the joy of seeing us obey the command in this generation then the gospel will speedily reach every home. No family in this country will be left without the author of the gospel, whether they receive it or not.
3: The thing I love most about Hudson Taylor is just his live by faith approach. When I was back in Bible college, that, this is 2011. You know, introduction to missions class. I remember reading a biography on Hudson Taylor, and it it stuck with me. It's something that I still remember to this day. Is just that that mindset of fully relying on God for your needs. Uh, it's something that you don't you don't see a whole lot in today's day and age and i think of george Mueller. he's another one that kind of has that approach of uh that, that just they they make an impact because it's not easy it's not easy to have faith in god to provide everything all of your food all of your supplies all of all of your clothing and this sermon i love how he he reflects on these people that have seen what jesus has done they've seen these miracles that jesus has done in the past They've seen Jesus feed a multitude in the past before, but they still need to be reminded that Jesus is powerful enough to do it, and I love how that, that parallels our own life to where we know the power of God, but... We, we need to be reminded, as as sad as that is, and so in a lot of ways, and, and Hudson Taylor knows this, and in a lot of ways, he's 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 trying to encourage these missionaries again and again that, that God is with us and that God will provide to see what he has commanded us to do get done.
1: Hudson Taylor, I mean, we do a lot of great speakers, a lot of great sermons, but there there's something about him that I just, I feel like every time I engage with his work, I learn something new from it. Hudson Taylor, do you notice the confidence he has in God? I I don't know if this strikes you like it strikes me, but when he prays and when he talks, he's like, this is the numbers we can use to reach the gospel. I fully believe that God will give us what we need. Let us be this confident in it. I love it because so often in life, I'm like, God, if it's your will, if you'd like to do this, maybe you could do this thing. And I don't want to, you know, step on your toes, God, but here's what I'm asking for. And that's kind of how I pray and how I interact with God. I'm a little fearful. Maybe I won't get it. I don't want to get my hopes up kind of a thing. And I contrast that with, Taylor, who's just like, God, here's how many missionaries we need. Here's what we're going to need from which countries we can get it. Here, we're putting it at your feet. We're going to move forward, and uh, this is the plan, right? We're going to follow the word. We're going to follow the command. Notice he says, we don't try to follow him. We do his commands, and we trust him to provide, and we trust him to get enough food to feed that multitude. That trust, that confidence in God, I envy that, and I hope that as you listen to the sermon and hear about his life and we do more work at Revive Thoughts, that you, like me, will try to emulate that and have that love for God confidence confidence.
3: Thank you for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Dr. Mike Dodds. To find out more about Revive Thoughts or to view the transcript for today's episode or all of our episodes,
1: visit revivethoughts.com. Thank you for listening to Revive Thoughts. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. That way you can hear every sermon that we do. We put out a new sermon every Thursday. And if you want to continue enjoying this kind of content, you've got to be subscribed so that you don't miss a single episode. And speaking of episodes, this is our 40th episode. And we have another 39 sermons, so if you're just coming in or you're new to the show, definitely go back and check out some of those earlier shows. We have uh, sermons by famous people like Spurgeon, you know, Bonhoeffer, Edwards, but maybe less famous people too that you can also be edified by. Uh, Alexander McLaren or Christopher Love, great names that have some great truth to tell you today and you can also share this show with others maybe through a link or just talking to a friend or a family member maybe your pastor at church just letting them know about this resource it's free it's something they can hopefully learn and grow from too and i think that as we've heard feedback from people it is really uh impacting them in their faith and encouraging them and the more people we can tell about that the better off we all are and more people can grow spiritually it's a whole great thing this is troy and joel and this is refined thoughts
0: This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where you'll hear from Christian female entrepreneurs, politicians, ministry leaders, authors, athletes, CEOs, and more. I'm Erica Anderson, mom of two, writer, and host and creator of Worth Your Time. I created this podcast because I wanted to hear from more women like me who were interested in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. How do we navigate the choppy waters of partisan politics? How do we engage with culture honorably as Christian professionals? I know you don't have a lot of time, and that's why I make every second worth it on this show. You'll hear from women that aren't on every other Christian podcast, and we get really real because I don't know how to function any other way. Episodes drop every other Tuesday. Hope to see you there.